So I'm Nikki Shepherd, and I'm here at Farnborough Library with Ben Aronovich, the creator of the Rivers of London series. Urban sci-fi crime fantasy series. Urban sci-fi crime fantasy. Urban sci-fi crime <laughs> fantasy, <laughs> fantasy series. Clamp, clamp some more yeah. genres in there <laughs> while we're at it. Romance. There's romances in it. Oh, that's true. That's true. Um, Vaguely. Which has sold over 5 million copies worldwide and been translated into 14 languages. Yay! Um, so Ben is an award-winning writer whose career has spanned over three decades. I don't know how that's possible. Um, including writing for Doctor Who and the cult soap opera Jupiter Moon. That's um, such a generous way of describing <laughs> Jupiter Moon. Cults, please. <laughs> um, ben famously said that it was while running the crime and science fiction sections at the Covent Garden branch of Waterstones that he conceived the notion of writing novels instead, a decision he hopefully doesn't regret. The novella Winter's Gift is the latest in his River of London series. Uh, can we start by learning a little bit more about Winter's Gift from you, please, Ben? Uh, yes, it's Winter's Gifts. Which is really hard to say. And oh I really, my God, and I, I really, do that last bit again. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine because everyone gets it wrong and I get it wrong when I'm saying it too. The title just drove me nuts for about like two weeks. And that was the best I could come up with. Oh, I'll have that one. <laughs> it's like, I, sometimes you know the title before you're going to start, right? And sometimes you don't know the title. You finish the book. And for example, Rivers of London was called Midnight, not Midnight, right? That's the American title. It was called um, Magic Cops. That was its working title for like five years, right? And it wasn't until we were literally, the publishers were going, look, we need a title for this book. And I was like, ah. And my friend Andrew Cartmel said, oh, call it Rivers of London. I went, oh, that's a terrible title, but it's better than anything I can think of. And now we're stuck with it. I don't know. There's something about Magic Cops I love. It's just got that amazing 70s ring to it. Well, it is. Magic I mean, Bodie and Doyle and all of those yeah, series. It was, it was essentially, the this core of the idea was essentially, what if Gandalf joined the Sweeney, you see? <laughs> but you can't use that as a pitch anymore because nobody knows who the Sweeney is, you see? But I was like, you know, I wanted magicians that went around going, get your trousers on, you're nicked. So did you know Did you know it was going to be set in winter then early on? Because it, the weather is a huge part of that. Oh, novella. yeah. No, this was, this was the, there are four novellas in this series, and they're all set in a particular season. So you have The October Man, which is set in Germany during the autumn. You have What Abigail Did That Summer. And then um, this one, which is set in the winter, which I knew was set in the winter. And I was going for... And each of them is slightly different. Not only are they different side characters. This, the novellas really my chance to explore some of the, the characters that weren't Peter uh, in a way that wouldn't annoy my publishers too much. And so, and I thought it'd be nice to give them thematic, a sort of thematic unity in case, case they had, we had to combine them into one book or something and sell them and it would vaguely hang together. Uh, so I knew, so I knew who every season was and I wanted, and also I wanted a slightly different style. So Abigail is vaguely YA-ish, even though it's not a YA book. October Man is very straight police procedural. And Winter's Gifts uh, is my um, my attempt at sort of vaguely horror, horrifying. So it's, it's vaguely horror. It is quite yeah. horrific. Yeah, it, well, it's, it's also written in the style of a, of, a, of, a, of a horror thriller, although it's not actually a horror thriller. It's not, horror, it's not horrific enough to be a proper horror book. And also you don't have the kind of existential dread like you get in a proper horror novel. So, you know, you know she's going to get out at the end. There's just no way she's not going to, she's not going to die. There's no real sort of excess threat. You know, the world is not going to be destroyed. She's going to prevail. So the big distinction with a horror novel is you don't know that about your protagonist. Your protagonist, protagonists frequently don't survive horror 
stories. That's true. See, that's one of the big distinctions between it's like a say a thriller and a horror story is that you you do not know that they're going to make it through. They do not have plot armor. <laughs> so you know, so that's I. But I wanted it to be have that kind of ambiance rather than so it was. You think of it as kind of horror ambiance. Yeah, and definitely now you've said that the tension starts to build quite quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, and it was designed. It was designed as like you know, so you have like first there's a disturbance, and then there's a bit of and then that's basically how you do a horror. Well, that's how I do a horror. I mean, obviously other people do it all the way around. Until you'd mentioned the seasons, and it's 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 crazy because I've read I reread all of the books this summer, even before I knew you were coming to the to the library. Um, they're my comfort read. Oh, good. And they're, they're one of the, yeah, and I, I reread them. Be really. honest, you listen to the common versions, don't you? Oh, well, I, I do both. Yeah. Actually, I mix and match. <laughs> I listen to the audiobook and then I read, when I'm walking my dog and then I read the, the book, I pick it up, yeah. which people think is really weird, but I, I. No, no, you can do that. You've got this system now where you have like this thing where it's slave to your Kindle account. You can just switch backwards and forwards. It's very handy. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I just did it with a physical book because we, we've got. Um, all of your books from BorrowBox are the library app, so people can okay. borrow them free. Um, but yeah, um, I hadn't ever put together the fact it's Abigail in the summer, October Man, and Winter's Gift until you explained that to me. Yeah, um, and the next one's the spring. So yeah, that, that, I hadn't even thought of that. But I suppose, in a way, because you are ex exploring a side character, um, I don't want to give away the ending for anyone who hasn't read the book, but obviously Agent Kimberly Reynolds, you know, she could have died, Reynolds. Yeah. She, she, no, because actually the whole incident is referenced in one of the earlier books. Oh, I didn't make that connection either. No, I, did put, I don't put these connections in. I, it's not vital to make these connections. I just like putting them in. You know, it's like authors do that because for us it takes like... 12 months to write a book. You guys read it in like three days. It's like, and we like, so what we labor for a week writing, you, you guys doing like a day, no, not even a day, like an hour. An hour's reading for you is like a week's work. And, and so we like, so we delight in the little details like that, which we know that people often don't pick up. But it's just fun to put in, and then for people who do find them, it's like a fun little fun thing. It's like a little, them. like a little extra reward. For yeah, it's like a little extra reward for attention. diligence, for paying attention. <laughs> it's interesting because you sometimes are quite public about your word count, aren't you? I've seen uh, on the yeah, platform. Yeah, when, when I'm working, <laughs> well, when I'm when I'm working steadily, I publish my word count. At the moment, I'm doing so many different projects that the word count is meaningless because I'm doing several things at once. And if you're when you're doing several things at once, you can't really publish a word count. Because half of that was for like essays or projects or notes on other people's things that you have to that I've had to do. So I I once once that that's kind of calmed down, then we'll get we'll go back to having a word count when it's a, when it's just the writing on the book. Then you get the word count. I am writing the book, but I'm having to fit it in between other projects at the moment. So when you're right, when you're able to focus on a book, yeah. Like I think you said to me, the next novella, it was a really quick writing process for you. Yeah, it just went really fast. Sometimes it goes fast. So there's there's no there's no this is the Ben Aronovich way that it it varies from project to project, book to book, whatever else is going on in your life. Every time I start a book, I stare at that bloody screen and go, why is this not getting any easier? <laughs> why you think nine novels, right? Nine novels later, you think that it would get a whole easier. world you've built. But it's not even that. It's just you just think the process of writing would get easier, but it doesn't. It's the same old bloody slog every single time, which I, I suppose is good because it means other people don't, you know, you don't have to worry about competition so much. But um, it is, it's, you just do it. I mean, I just write. I like writing. 
It's not work. You know, it's, it's difficult. It's like, I always describe it like running a marathon. You know, if you're not a professional runner, lots of people run the marathon. No one's paying them to run these marathons. In fact, they go out and they run these marathons and you think it's some bloody stupid thing to be doing. I mean, for a start, do they not remember that the guy died, right? <laughs> he arrives, we won, pump, drops dead, right? That's the whole legend, <laughs> okay? Is that not a hint that maybe you shouldn't be doing 26 miles, okay? I, I think so, but never mind. Um, but you, when you watch people running a marathon, I've never done it, but I've watched people doing it. You can see that like they go through stages like, oh, they're having a really good time. And then they feel, oh, wow, did I think this was a good idea? And then it's like, then they go through a barrier and they're enjoying it. And then, and you get to see them, they get to the end and they stop. And you can see this thought process and it's, a, it's just transparently on their faces. You can see their faces going, I'm never doing that again, right? That is the last time I bloody put myself through this. <laughs> and then they lie down on the thing where you lie down after you've collapsed doing the run, right? Theatrically. Uh, and then you sit there and you go, you know, if I start training now, I can do New York next year. <laughs> and, and that's just like, you can just see that on their face. It's, and that's what writing is like. You finish a novel and you think, why did I think that was a good idea? I am not doing that again. And then about uh, two days later, your, your fingers start getting itchy. So when you are writing, when you're in the midst of writing a novel, do you find that those characters start to inhabit, they come into your world? So you might be, for instance, making a cup of tea and you'll suddenly have a little piece of dialogue will pop up or a situation or something. Do they start to enter your uh, world? Not, not quite that distinctly. I always imagine there's like a green room behind my whiteboard, right? And they bang on the wall and demand parts. <laughs> That's how I imagine my characters. Oh, I and, and then they fight with you. You, you. you can't get something to work and you go, why aren't you working? And you can hear the muffled voice from the green room going, because I wouldn't do that in a million fucking years. <laughs> Uh, you know, and like minor characters are constantly asking for bigger parts and stuff like that. But that's good. It's when the characters don't do that that you're in trouble. When you write a character and they just, there, they just flop on the ground and flip, flip, flip. That's when you're in trouble. I've had characters do that. You think they're going to be really interesting and they're really boring. And then their part gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and then you just cut it. <laughs> oh, fascinating. So they, sometimes they never even make it to the final no, edit. some of them never make it to the final edit. Oh, Plot lines occasionally don't make it to the final edit. I was like, Moon Over Soho, I had to excise an entire plot line because it was just one plot too many. Right. You know, I do that less now because that's a waste of words. <laughs> you I know, you can see it coming. Words. This is going to be a yeah, cul-de-sac. You know, one of the things you do get with the experience is seeing, oh, no, that's one too many plots. Let's not have that. Let's not do that. So, Ben, we asked some of our social media followers for questions, and I, I know you shared the post too on your own channel so thank you for that so here we've got some questions from some of your fans okay so michelle has said as an american who appreciates the footnotes written for agent reynolds what exactly is a steak slice that's a good question steak slice is like a uh, is like a uh, pastry with a meat filling i mean I, I assume it's got some kind of steak involved i've never actually checked right <laughs> trace descriptions some, some, act yeah. i mean i assume it's probably got a bit of steak uh, and it's basically a meat pie it's a meat pasty and it's flat uh, and you get it from Greg's. That's basically, I mean, obviously you can get it from other places. Other retailers do. <laughs> other retailers may. But for me, like Greg's, it's a steak pasty. You go, you go steak slice. You go, oh, I'll have a steak slice and a nice bun and a, and a cup of coffee. So we know now that you've definitely eaten some as part of the research. <laughs> I, I think I, my research started long before I started writing the books and Greg's. <laughs> 
Beverly says, I'm addicted to the audio versions of these books. Did you have any input into the choice of narrator? Cobner Holbrook-Smith is just perfect. Oh, they, they, they sent me his, I mean, they said, we're going to get pick a narrator. I mean, they did it in a tearing hurry because they weren't planning to do well. And then the books were much more successful than they expected. And this was before. Books now, generally, you expect to have an audio version. But back then, it wasn't so common. And they sent me his um, showreel. And I thought, oh, he's good. And then, you know, off he went. And then I was just really lucky. I mean, I'm not very good at actors so and performances. I've got a bit of a tin ear. So he's so popular. It's just embarrassing. He's amazing the way he, he can bring the, all of the... I mean, we were talking about his Nightingale voice. You yeah. know, he brings Nightingale to life. He brings Beverly to life. He's Well, he's very, he's very fun. He also brings quite a lot because there, there was... The bit where I really started to appreciate him was Moon Over Soho. And there's a sequence where the Lord Grant's Irregulars, that's the, the jazz band, his dad's jazz band, who aren't his jazz band, but they're all, they're all sitting in the wonky having, having Chinese. And um, I thought it was quite a funny scene, but when he did it, it was really funny. It just added something to it, and it just came <laughs> out much funnier than I wrote it. And I thought, aha, value added. So do you have to listen to them all before they're published? Do you listen to the audiobook? Well, I'm supposed to contractually, yes. I've got to give my approval. But mostly I do it because... What happens is you write the book and then you have to rewrite, do all the rewrites, and then you have to do the copy editing. By the time you finish that process, you are so sick of that book. You never want to see it again. But by the time it comes out, it's been about six to ten, you know, six to twelve months later, you you you're gonna go out and sell it, like I'm doing now. Ah, oh, hello, buy my book. <laughs> and you've forgotten all about it. So what I usually do is I listen to the audio because then then you and by that time, you've got over your kind of like, oh, God, I hate this book. It was the worst book I ever wrote. You get to the point where you think, oh, that wasn't that bad, actually. And you listen to Cobner and you think, oh, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> it's quite a good book. I'm done for that. And when you're writing now, is it Cobner's voice you hear in your head? Not for all the characters, but for Nightingale. Definitely for Nightingale. And also a little bit for Stephanopoulos. Okay. Particularly that kind of pained, pained <laughs> accent that she puts on and goes, Peter. <laughs> Could we not, you know, and that's like, I mean, actually, I've got to say, most of, most of the things I get from Cobra are the people complaining about Peter's behaviour. So it's like, oh, Beverly, Nightingale, Pete, Stephanopoulos. Leslie. Leslie. Yeah. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so Sarah has asked if Peter's heading to Scotland. I think there's been rumours that you've been doing, you've been seen in... And, uh, is it, seen in Aberdeen. Seen in Aberdeen. And she says, if, if he does... Uh, Dr. Postmartin needs to check out the magical library at Abbotsford, the home of Sir Walter Scott, because the River Tweed must surely have a deity. Uh, I'm sure it is, but I'm in Aberdeen. So, you know, the Don and the Dee, brook no, brook no rivals. <laughs> <laughs> so is this, is this definitely a hint that... Um... It's not a hint. I'm definitely setting a book in Aberdeen. Oh, and it's all Stuart McBride's fault, so... Okay. So, and, and you, were, you were genuinely up there doing research recently Yeah, I've then. been up there about... 12, 13 times now. Wow. So you know London so well. Obviously, you're a Londoner. Yeah. You're very open about it. Well, I know bits of London. of London very well. And then when you, books like this and Foxglove Summer, where they're set in other locations, do you, so did you do the same with Foxglove Summer? Oh, yeah. You, yeah. You I went up. That was, that was much harder. Because I can never picture you in Herefordshire. Well, that was the point, though, you <laughs> see. I chose the most rural place I could choose. It wasn't like, a Celtic area or uh, or the north. Yeah, yeah. See, because I wanted I wanted city versus country, not north versus south or Scotland versus London. 
I wanted city versus country and, and Herefordshire. And when I went there, I just looked at it. And, and also partly because um, the Rickman books are set there as well, you see. So I, that, that was an influence. And I went there and I found, I went on Google Maps and I found a village and I found a, like a, an interesting location. And I just picked out some locations and I went and had a look at this place. And it was even better. I mean, it literally is the kind of landscape you think of when you think of rural you know, the idealised rural England, um, you know, right. I was just going to say that my we, my friends and I did actually go on holiday there to try and find exactly some of the locations from the book. Well, they're all real locations. <laughs> I renamed the village because... Yes, you, yes, yes. So, you you know, we were scratching our heads, like looking at maps and trying to work out the yeah, yeah, geography but, but, from but, the description but, you of know, the... You know, all the other places, Birch's Common, Amesstree, yeah. the pub, uh, the walk, the the croft, all those things, all those things exist and were, and were very interesting. Poker's um, the wood is a real wood. I mean, I went there and I got the idea. There was this, this book by uh, I can't remember some, somebody something leather. Her surname is Leather, and she wrote it. And it's the folklore of Herefordshire. And I went looking for places for fairies to be, uh. and I found the wood that way. See, once I started looking at that, I started finding stuff, and then you just start building on stuff. It's the same thing I do in London, except it was in Herefordshire. The same thing I'm doing now in Aberdeen. You just find stuff and you just gather it up and then you publish it. As your world increases in scope and characters, how do you keep track of it all and avoid continuity errors? Uh, well, I don't. Um, so continuity errors are always turning up. No, I literally just recently paid someone because I should have done it myself about five books ago, but didn't. I kept on putting it off to go through all the books and make a note of who everyone is and what colour I colour they have and things like that. And one day I will look at these notes. <laughs> I was imagining like a family tree on the wall it's, of your home office or something. If only it was a family, just a family tree. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's like there's, there's more than one family, you see. I mean, even if you just take Beverly's family. Yes, you know. Um, but fortunately, they did a very, very good job of it. And it's all on a spreadsheet. So at some point I will... I mean, when I do the next book set in London, I'm going to have to start because that's when... At the moment, I've you know it's it's just Peter and Beverly and the twins and and Doctor Walid and like Scottish people, right? So but there's more I, license to be well, you, know, you can invent to, new I people. Don't yeah. to, I don't, yeah, I am inventing new yeah. people because we're up in a different yeah. location. When we go back to London, you know, and I'm having to remember, you know, Leed and Seawell and Stephanopoulos, they fairly stuck in my brain. But when we have like all the other characters, yeah. So Jane Amanda asks how you feel about people writing fan fiction about your characters. I don't really think anything about fan fiction. I mean, fan fiction, the important thing for a writer is not to worry about these things. You, like, you don't read reviews and you don't read fan fiction. You're fine. You shouldn't read fan fiction for a couple of reasons. One, it, if they write something you don't like, you're going to get angry and it's just not very good for you. Two, um, you have to be able to say that you haven't stolen it. Because like someone comes up with an idea and you come up with the same idea for the books, you have to be able to say with absolute clarity, right, I didn't steal that off this person, this mm. poor fan fiction writer. I mean, you're within rights as a writer to nick ideas. If they're using your, your stuff, you're pretty much within morally, I think, within your rights to nick it. But you shouldn't. And so therefore you shouldn't read fan fiction. You shouldn't read your own fan fiction. You can read other people's fan fiction. You can read fan fiction of other authors but you shouldn't read fan fiction so you know i think people enjoy doing it they should do what they enjoy i'm not going to get in their way <laughs> you know as long as they don't try and but just don't send it to you well don't send it to me and don't monetize it that's yeah. all i'm asking because <laughs> i have to get paid otherwise it's ah 
<laughs> and the multinationals out there would just love to find a way of, of not paying the authors. It's their dream. Every night, you know, the corporate heads go to bed and dream of a world where chat GPT and fans write all the products <laughs> and they get all the profit. That's their big, happy dream. Oh, that they lull that, themselves to sleep at night. Let's hope that never comes to pass. I think they'll be replaced before I am, personally. <laughs> um, so Julia has said, um, with such dynamics happened and happening in the UK's environments and politics, do you see it having an influence over how the series will play out? Well, it always has an influence. I mean, I, it's set in the real world. It's set in the contemporary world. I mean, for a start, the Metropolitan Police reorganises every six months on a rolling basis, and they, so I have to keep up with what everything's called, like they're all called different things now, right? You know, from what they were when I started the books. So I have to keep an eye on where I am in the time. But I have a, I've started having a very clear idea about which year each book takes place in, because otherwise you go mad trying to work out predicting the future. You go predict the future, it's a mugs game. So I know which year I am in, and I sometimes I have references to things going on. Sometimes I don't, depending on what the story is, because I'm dealing with a kind of magical stuff. I don't actually have to worry too much about um sort of a lot of contemporary politics and some of it's too depressing and i can't be bothered like you're not going to get a lot about brexit no. in 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 my books right you know, except that it's because it's just too depressing i don't want to write about it it's funny I, actually now i think about it i can't i can't remember any reference to any politician or or any i mean i wouldn't do a specific because no. it dates the book really quickly exactly, yeah. as well i mean nobody remembers that they remember the pop stars they won't remember the politician no one will remember who boris johnson is in in 10 years time but they will get the reference about david bowie yeah so Nightingale has a dream of of potentially reopening the school doesn't he he has a, he has a retirement more as a college than as a school. I don't think he's planning to induct 12-year-olds in, right? I, I mean, for a start, can you imagine the health and safety implications, okay? <laughs> risk assessments for, ma yeah. risk assessments for imagine, magical experiments. Can you imagine the Department for Education coming around and going, you're going to do what? <laughs> right? Fireballs. No, no fireballs. No, no. You know, because back in when Nightingale was at school, it was perfectly acceptable for, like, kids to walk around with loaded, real loaded rifles and do training with rifles and stuff like that, that you just wouldn't... <laughs> and do incredibly dangerous kind of sports and, and full contact kind of rugby and things like that. But, you know... But so Nightingale's appalled by the restrictions on children these days. He just <laughs> thinks we just way too coddle our children way too much. Do you, you think know? he'll ever will um, open the college? Is it, I, oh, yeah, he's definitely going to open the college open sooner the college. or later. I don't know if it's going to... You know, I'm not planning to make a big thing in the books unless I come up with a really good story. Right. Okay. But it, it's something, these things are just organically happening and sooner or later they were happening, but I don't know when they're going to happen. I mean, I don't have a plan. I don't have a plan like this book will be about <laughs> Nightingale opening the college and this book will be about Abigail blowing it up and this book, you know, whatever. I think it's interesting with Nightingale because we all know that he is incredibly, he's incredibly old for for a human being. He's yes. an, an unnatural lifespan, yeah. and even he doesn't know what sustains his lifespan. Yeah. But I think when you first mentioned the thought of him retiring, I think a little a little chill on the back of my neck. The thought, because uh, and I think Peter reacted in a similar way. Yeah, but that's why he does it because <laughs> <laughs> he knows that Peter's got no. Peter will always, you know, will not think of himself. Right? So he has to make him think of somebody else. He has to make the only thing that will curb Peter is a sense of responsibility. He can't 
necessarily risk his life if he's going to be the person in charge. And that's, he, uh, he is incredibly reckless. He he, goes, yeah, he's not reckless. He just does the right thing regardless. <laughs> Without pausing to think. He's pausing to think about it. That's what's terrifying. It's like he does think about it and then he does, does it, it anyway. anyway. <laughs> right? If he did it without thinking, right, <laughs> that would be one thing. Like Simon, who is uh, Abigail's friend, has no fear, oh, yes. literally has no fear. And so therefore will not think because it just never occurs to him that anything bad will happen. You get people like that in history. You get people like Douglas Bader, who ha literally had no fear and couldn't understand fear in other people. He had real trouble with fear in other people because he personally had no fear and he didn't understand what fear was. And Simon is like that, but Nightingale actually does know what fear is. Nightingale, Nightingale is personally very brave. And, and so is Peter. That's one of the reasons they get on because in some ways, Nightingale and Peter are very similar people. They're both kind of like, um, they're both sort of like two versions of the, the British stiff upper lip, the posh one and the working class one. It's kind of like the same. It's the kind of, yeah. And, uh, I've always thought of them like that. And they're also very similar in some ways and very unsimilar in other ways, but very similar in some ways. Because there's that chase and the chocadero, isn't there? Yes, um, chasing after the... And uh, I do actually, you're, you're right, because um, Peter pauses and he says, I know this is going to hurt. You know, like he literally knows <laughs> he's about to slam in some glass barrier, I think, or something. Or, or there was an, es I don't know if it was the escalators. He ended up like falling down the, uh, the escalators. Yeah, and he does it, but he does, it, he does a risk assessment. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody objects to his risk assessment. The problem is that having assessed the risk, he then does it anyway. Carries on anyway, carries on regardless. <laughs> no, the whole point of a risk assessment, Peter, is that you then don't do the thing that's incredibly risky. <laughs> Right, uh, but he hasn't quite got the hang of that. So, so the first book was published in 2011, First Rivers of London novel, and yes. since then you've published 14 more books in the series and graphic well, novels. Well, nine novels, four novellas, and some graphic novels, and short story collection, and the short story collection. Do you have a favourite title? Well, I'm very fond of Moon Over Soho because I actually that's all I had at the beginning was the title. I didn't have a, a story. I just had the title. It's like the complete opposite of Rivers of London, where I didn't have a title. I had a story and no title. In Moon Over Soho, I had, it's called Moon Over Soho because that's such a cool title. Such a, such a, and such a cool cover as well. Yeah, and then I went, oh, I've got to do something. So obviously Soho. <laughs> I thought, well, Moon Over Soho, that's either werewolves or jazz. And I went with werewolves. I went with jazz, not werewolves. So there you go. Jazz vampires. Yeah, well, that, that, I wasn't planning jazz vampires. They just turned up. A lot of my stuff is done on the fly. I don't necessarily think to myself, this is what's going to happen, and this is going to happen, and these characters are going to happen. I mean, uh, for example, Foxglove Summer, right? Originally, the idea was that, that the end of the story was going to be when they rescue the kids. But then Beverly turned up, and I wanted that whole sequence in the river. I thought, well, they can't do that while the kids are missing. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be wrong, wouldn't it? Yeah. Got to be focused. So they had to find the kids, right? <laughs> Otherwise, I couldn't do that great scene in the river, right? <laughs> so, yeah. so the whole changeling element of the yeah, story came about to allow yeah. you to have Beverly and yeah. Peter and... Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. well, sort of. I mean, it's more complicated than that. It's not like... A, the way you say it sound like that is like A equals B equals right, C okay. equals D. It's more nuanced. What, what happens is you have a cloud of ideas and as you write, they slowly come into focus. And then, you, and, and then also, you know, it's a really... It's, it seemed to me a very clever thing to do, to have like the kids found in the middle, right? Because you're expecting it to be the thing that happens at the end, but no, you find the kids in the middle. 
And that's just the beginning. And this is where the story really starts, you know, and you have to find out why, where did they go? What, what was the problem? Is that really the end of the story? And that's a much better story than just finishing with them finding the kids at the end. So when you're starting, do you have, do you have the whole of the idea in, mapped out? Varies from book to book. Right, okay. Some books I have nothing, except for the title. Me and Soho. <laughs> Some books I have the end, but no beginning. Some books I have the beginning and the end, no middle. Sometimes I have a middle and an end, but no beginning. You know, I, I just generally, generally I have a mood. A mood, a location, and a sense of something. Newman uh, And then you just kind of like start exploring. You start writing and the things start coming into focus. As you continue through the story, things come more and more into focus. And sometimes you're aiming at something and sometimes you're just seeing where you go. And it just depends on the books, on the story. Some of them are really obvious. Like I knew um, in some books, I knew in Broken Homes, I knew what was happening at the end. And I knew what was happening in the middle. I wasn't really too sure what happened at the beginning. So, you know, that was a completely different structure. I had to sit down and work out how to do that. Winter's Gift was planned out very carefully because I had the whole story. Right. I had the whole story for Winter's Gift. So I got, actually got a chance for a change to actually plan it out, which <laughs> I don't normally do. Uh, what Abigail did that summer, uh, I had a mood. I had the house and I had the mood. So I had to get her into the house and then I had to get her out of the house. Right. And so, you know, that was, that's the way that one went. And it varies from story to story. I never, I, you know, it would be nice if I had a system, but I don't. It just kind of like amalgamates. And so do you have a favourite character? Well, I mean, apart from Peter. Yeah, apart And from Nightingale Peter. and yeah. Seawell <laughs> and Stephanopoulos and Beverly and Abigail <laughs> and and. I love them all. I love them all. I love all my characters. Even the ones that no one likes. Really? You've got characters no one likes? Yeah, Zach. Nobody likes Zach. Everyone complains when Zach turns up in a book. Oh, I like Zach. Oh, okay. You're the one person who likes him. Everybody else is like, oh, God, not Zach again. <laughs> but I really like Zach. Yeah, no, I, I, like, I like the energy he brings. Yeah, you know, I like, I like that thing. I like that he gave me a lot of insight. Zach was very useful for insight into um, how the demi-monde worked. Because once I invented him, I had, and once I made him a goblin boy, I called him goblin boy, once I made a background for him um, and made him sort of half fade, then I had to come up with what he was like. And then that thing where he, he like just lusts after Leslie, despite the fact that the face, right, as if, as, if, as if it doesn't, you know, there's no effect on him. Like yeah, that, yeah. Then I suddenly understood what it was the Demi one was like. They don't look at the world the same way. They look at the world in a completely different way. They, different things are important to them. Than from us, they have a completely—they're just as superficial, but just superficial about different things, right? And then you know, and suddenly I understood that, and suddenly that made for me the demi much more real. So whatever else you think about Zach, he is my—he was my gateway into the wider demi So that was kind of useful. And I might have been reading too much into it, but I thought it was really interesting that he's so attracted to Leslie and like she's lost you know at that in Broken Homes particularly when they have like a particularly like kind of passionate you know he's well not well he's always coming isn't he no he's friends with benefits he drinks all the milk eats all the bread and stay oh, yeah. he's like he's having like a feral yeah, teenager ate, in some ate, respects and, isn't he turn up and it's full of I mean, they're, they're full of the quiet people because they've all crashed there after <laughs> a night out and things like that that he was, I mean, there is quite a lot of the feral teenager about him, kind of like, he's a little bit based on my brothers when I, 
because I was much younger than my brothers. And every so often, the living room used to fill up with these bodies in, in <laughs> great coats, patchouli smelling kind of great, huge. You know, I was a little kid and they were like massive, long haired bodies with that was the boys all had long hair. You know, uh, in in great coats, smelling of marijuana and patchouli oil, and 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 you know, the, and you just come down. I'd want to watch sun, you know, Saturday morning television. I couldn't get into the bloody living room because it was full of. Crushing. And undoubtedly, the fridge would have been empty because they probably would have. I have no idea. I wasn't in charge of the fridge. There would have been a fresh out of luck in our house. We did not have a lot of food in that house because we were not not a well-off family. So, you know, the fridge was never a cornucopia. You can guarantee whatever's in your fridge, if Zach came around, it would be gone. He'd yeah, have, Zach would eat everything. He'd drink all the milk, eat all the wheat a bit. Probably pocket some knickknacks on the way out. Yeah, he can't help himself. <laughs> and you can't lock him out because he'll just go through the lock like butter. He just And you know, he's a great character in some ways because he's 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 quite sad in his own way. His his inability to settle in any one place is quite sad and, and yeah, so he does. He still floats around, doesn't he? And appears. In, in, he, you in, know, I mean, the speculation is that it's part of his nature is that he can't settle. Part of his fae nature is that he can't settle. Mm. But that could just be an excuse. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows with the fae? Who knows? I'll have him keep nice and vague. And it's interesting because thinking about Zach, you know, with all of the characters, I have a very strong idea in my head about how they look. Um, I, I said to you earlier, I think. Um, when I, I always imagined that Cobner would look exactly like Peter Grant, but then when I, I looked at the I looked at a picture of Cobner uh, Holbrook Smith, the actor, he doesn't look like Peter Grant, and I was a bit disappointed. <laughs> I know the TV rights have have been sold. So, yeah. do you ever worry about uh, a, a TV series being made, or would you, as an author, does it does it worry you? Because obviously you've written for oh, Doctor yeah, Who. No, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm. Uh, there's two ways of approaching a TV rights. You're selling a TV rights is take the money and run, or stick around and be disappointed. And I've gone for the stick around and be disappointed. So I am working with the production company. I have a lot of um, rights and things that I probably shouldn't have bothered trying to get, but I've got them anyway. But in the end, you see, it's about money. It's an expensive TV show. It's going to be about ten million an episode. Eight to ten million an episode, which is a lot, a lot. Especially if they're starting with the first book. Yeah, well, the whole point is the central London is just expensive to film in anyway. Right? Especially when you destroy huge chunks of it. Well, that's, <laughs> ironically, that's probably not the expensive bit. The expensive bit is the riot in Bow Street is going right. to be expensive, right? Because that's like 200 extras in costume flying pyrotechnics at each other. <laughs> that's costing money. That's not, you know. Five nights of shoot night shooting in central London is not cheap. <laughs> so, and you know, the jag is expensive because you've got to have like five vintage jags because you have to have a hero jag, two stunt jags, and a backup jag just in case. Uh, and a jag that you can film, like, this, this looks like a jag, but doesn't actually have to have any of the innards so that you can film people up against it and stuff. And that sort of thing is very expensive because, you know, nobody wants to scratch up their jag because it's not, it's not pristine. So, no vintage car jag owner is going to let us scratch up their jag all those things are what pushes up the price you know building this building the inside of the folly we're going to have to at least build part of the inside of the folly because i don't think the reform club is going to let us film in there day and night so you know it, all of these things all of these things add up so it's very expensive and the thing is if you go to a, a broadcast you say can i have 10 million pounds please they get to have a say in what the final product looks like right 10 million buys you a lot of say, okay? So whatever I want, sooner or later, I'm going to have to compromise. And so nobody, no writer 
especially novelists, likes to compromise. Yeah, I suppose um, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you're not Peter Jackson here. He had, he was able even to write. Peter, the... Yeah, but even Peter Jackson had to compromise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I suppose they had the cost. They had a budget, didn't they? Yeah, even Peter Jackson had compromise. It doesn't look like it, but there was, there was, <laughs> you know, and a great deal of enthusiasm and, and people who were very excited and wanted to do it, right? And he comp, but he, he compromised. You know, in, when he had to, he compromised. It's really exciting to hear that production's underway. Although, well, no, production is not underway. Okay. <laughs> Production, <laughs> production is at the same stage that it's been for the last twelve years. In ah, the, you know, okay. Yeah, I call it Schrodinger's TV series. <laughs> it both exists and yes, there's a box <laughs> <laughs> inside. May or may not be a TV series, oh. or possibly an angry cat. It's very hard to tell sometimes. <laughs> so we think of you as a writer, obviously. Obviously, um, well, yes. But I'm also interested to learn about a bit more about you as a reader. Um, I wonder if you'd mind telling us a little bit more about what you read. <sighs> I read a tremendous amount of non-fiction for my work uh, and occasionally for fun. And sometimes it overlaps. I'm not going to say that doesn't. So I probably have one of the largest local history sections in London, local history sections in London now <laughs> in my house because I'm, I'm, I'm a compulsive buyer of books. I go, oh, trams, 1963 to 1967 in Hackney. I'll have that. Because <laughs> I think, well, maybe I want trams in Hackney. Maybe I want to do a story about trams. Who knows, right? So um, when I'm actually writing, I read a lot of cosy crime because it doesn't interfere <laughs> with anything. I can read it like, well, I say I read it. It's what I listen to in bed when I'm going to sleep. So I go through... So I tend to find a cosy crime writer and then go through every single book they've ever written. <laughs> and I'm reading a lot of it, um, Ellie Griffiths. So I've read everything she's written so far. And now I'm hanging around waiting for the next one like this. Next one, please. <laughs> Although I, I do sit there going, how can the hero get into trouble every single book? Right? I just would like her not to have a climax with her. Just, Ellie, she doesn't have to get in trouble every book, okay? <laughs> Doesn't have to be life or death at the end of every book. That's what I, I say. Have to, I have to confess, I've never read Ellie Griffiths. Oh, You've very, made very, me curious. Very, now very, I'm going to have to go good. and borrow. They're very good. They're very, very good books. Um, well, I read a lot of you know, science fiction, crime, fantasy, cosy fantasy. I'm very cosy. I think I'm just getting very kind of conservative <laughs> in my old age. I don't want to be troubled so, <laughs> or frightened. Yeah. Well, no, you get these all these books like, oh yes, it's the end of the world. It's oh, it's wonderfully bleak and depressing. I think I really just don't need to do that. If I want that, I can just turn on the news. And bleak and depressing is I don't need that. But you know, I understand people like that. I liked that much more when I was younger. Now I don't. Now I don't like bleak and depressing. So I read happy, cosy, yay. You know, I got low, low taste anyway. <laughs> so, final question: uh, In False Valleys, there was a chase through the London Library. Yes. Bayfield Library becomes a refuge from the extreme weather and other things for Agent Kimberly Reynolds and Winter's Gifts. Yes. Now you visited Farnborough Library in Hampshire. Ha! How would you feel about setting a scene here? Well, I love this. It's it's basically cut off from the entire town. <laughs> it's like the most isolated library I've ever met. Okay, the only library more isolated than this is the one down in um, uh, Gillingham, right, which is that, uh, what do you call it? Oh, Medway, Medway Library, which is down in its own little park by the, by the, which is a nice setting. This, when I looked up on Google Maps to see how to get here, I was going, 
you've got to walk across the roundabout. This is like, you know, well, they weren't really thinking accessibility when they did this one, were they like? But um, it's, it's a very interesting, it's a 60s building. I mean, you can just walk in, oh, look, it's 50s, 60s building. From that big period when everyone, like the council, was throwing up stuff all over the place. It's very nice, very robust, well built, big, big, a lot of books, which is what I like in a library. Got a coffee shop, which is also what I like in a library. Coffee and books. You can't go much wrong with coffee and books. I don't know. I've never thought of coming this end to do a story. It's quite an unremarkable part of the country, I suppose, Hampshire, but isn't it? I'm, I'm, <laughs> you know, it's it's. You never know where you're going to end up. For all I know, next week, oh, Farnborough. Yes. <laughs> Peter's car might break down in Farnborough. You never I'm know. I'm <laughs> fairly certain. My brain is going that there's quite an aviation history around here. There is a huge history. So this is the home of aviation. Yes, this is the home of aviation. I think also the Farnborough testing ground is uh, all the uh, where the... The wind tunnels. That would yeah, uh, yeah, and, yeah. The, and the balloons, the and World War One balloons. So you never know, Nightingale might be able And isn't, to... isn't the... the uh, the air crash investigation team based out of here. They are. Yes. See, so that actually, if anything else, that, that will drag me down here. I'm bound to blow up a plane sooner or later. <laughs> actually, that's a really good idea. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, I think fun. I mean, at least as, as the home of the aviation well, we will always make you a coffee and make you welcome if you decide to come back to Farnborough Library for more research. Well, I'm sure you'll, I'm sure you'll have me back. Oh, definitely. Um, Thank you so publicity much. Publicity hound that I am. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. It's Maybe been it's an nice absolute to be joy here. to talk to you Thank about you. the books. So, thank you. Yes.